Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Bethann Moran Hanslick, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here with you. I just, I love the podcast. I'm already a fan. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Well, I'm honored to have you on the show because I, when I discovered you, it wasn't that long ago, actually. I discovered you maybe six or eight months ago and was so unbelievably impressed with your work. I was just, it's, it's incredible. So, oh, thank you. I can't wait to learn more about you, kind of figure out what makes you tick. So, but I want okay. to learn about your history first. So, tell me a little bit about where you came from. How did you end up getting into this field? Yeah, I grew up in a small town, West Bend, Wisconsin. And um, I think there were two like really formative things that struck that are like embedded in my memory as far as being an artist. And I think I was about five years old and I kind of knew that I loved to draw and I was in kindergarten and we were given the assignment, you know, the lined paper and we were to make a capital letter D. And instead of writing out the letter D, I just drew what I thought was the most amazing dog. And uh, <laughs> Sister Leonard, who was shorter than I am and uh, just a wonderful woman, but a little scary. Um, she took the paper, she didn't say anything, and then she asked me later if she could keep it, and she gave me in return a little piece of purple licorice, and I was a kid with a sweet tooth, so that just made like a really big impression on me. And then in about second grade or third grade, I'm going to say, uh, we took a field trip to the Museum of Wisconsin Art, and at that time, this art collection was in a home um, that didn't look too much different than any other home on a block, but you went into the museum and you'd go to um, like a balcony. There was a big dark room. It was, imagine like an indoor swimming pool, but really dark, velvet, black, just spotlights. And you'd enter at the top on this balcony and you'd look out over all of these works of art by Carl von Marr. A mm. lot of people don't know his work, but they are powerful paintings. And then you'd go down the steps on either side, like a promenade, and you'd slowly walk down toward what was this massive painting of, it's called the flagellants, of these people who are striking their back on a procession through a medieval city. Um, and it's just gloriously painted. Um, it's about 22 feet wide, and I think about 13 high. So it's a massive Multi okay. and you brought this city. painting right you brought this painting yeah. with you all right let me let's pull that up real quick sure so uh, let's see yeah so while you're doing that i'll i'll uh give so you this the is the one so, right yes this is the one and there's one picture there's another picture i think it's the second image in the row there of me standing in front yeah that one yeah this, right oh that, my yep, gosh that second one. huge that. so that's me in front of this painting and so you, you were in this dark, dark room, 
and you'd go down the steps and you're I'm in second grade and the kids were all in little groups but um, this painting it makes up the full wall of the end of this large room so you you entered the room at the, about the height of the top of the pillar pillar there or the flag and slowly move down to the level of those figures and as wow. you walk toward the, this large painting along the side of you were there was a large portrait of the artist's mother and she was looking down at you with this kind of chagrin there was a portrait of his father at a work table um there were portraits and or paintings of um the christ child with these illuminated angels and cherubic figures around but this painting just compelled me like i felt magnetized to it like like a fish just being reeled in very very carefully and slowly and i both wanted to go toward it and i was kind of horrified by it really afraid of it um but then as i got there because the museum was so small you could stand like inches away from this painting and my eye line was kind of right around the feet of the girl in the white robe no um, the ground is now i think of it like um bastian lepage's uh topi uh raw umber grounds there are little leaves and flicks and it just felt like dirt her feet i felt like i could see her feet and You've, I almost felt the air coming from this um, painting, and I would be glued to it, you know, just just stuck in this painting. And I I I didn't know what it exactly it was, but I knew I loved it, and I was afraid of it. And so then, after a time, my teacher called on me and was like, "Beth Ann, come on, we're going up." And I was I didn't want to turn my back to it, so I started walking away from this painting, thinking the figures might somehow assert themselves on me even though i knew they were you know this other material and then i walked by the other paintings one of which was a young couple who had been newly married and the geranium that they're sitting by is just like this very present flower and then another one of a very it was a small painting of a christmas tree and the tree was on a little table and it's just illuminated with magical christmas lights and it was such a beautiful note to leave on and then you go up the steps and you turn back and look again at this painting. And mm. um, I think that experience just uh, seared painting into me in a way that, you know, is kind of inexplicable. But um, I think it was already there. But that experience and then going back to that museum because it was in my hometown, just, I don't know, it just made sense. So is it still in your hometown? Yes, and they've built a beautiful new museum of Wisconsin art. And if you are ever in Wisconsin, it is a destination collection, those Carl von Marr paintings. Um, they're really extraordinary. Um, Lori Winters is the current director of the museum, and she's just doing a great job um, bringing in a lot of programming and artists and um, yeah, but those paintings, destination paintings. Wow, that's incredible yeah. that you have a painting like that at your disposal to study it's from. so true unbelievable yeah. so how yeah. did you go from this third grader who yeah. is just in awe of this incredible work to actually getting your hands into oil paint um it took a little while i my parents were my mom is just a really aesthetic person um she's very textural she built a home life for us that was um 
really beautiful. You know, she she honored small beauty in our life. And she was a hardworking person, a teacher. She came from a big family in South Dakota um, and then was a stay-at-home mom and really provided like meals and uh, just all kinds of wonderful things for us, uh, really loving home. And my dad, um, you know, as much as he, he was an orthodontist, but I would say as much as he was an orthodontist, he was a sculptor, an engineer, a tinkerer, an inventor. He, he has a couple of patents and he was always doing physical things um, with his hands. And so his name, Hanslick, it's so appropriate because <laughs> yeah. it has a hand, you know, right yeah. in it. Um, so they provided a really fertile kind of ground for creativity. And then I just kept begging. I knew that the Carl von Marr painting was made of oil, oil paint. I didn't know what that was, <laughs> but from second grade on, I was like, can I have some oil paint? Can I have some oil paint? And, uh, wow. and finally, um, my uncle Tony was a painter, my dad's brother, really good painter, uh, oil painter, but also watercolor painter. And I think he finally, at the age of 13, he said, yeah, you, this is a good age, get her some oil paint. It's going to work out. And so um, I included that little painting that I, it's the only painting I have, but it's the very first one that I did with my oil painting set of Is, this little girl. Oh, I copied yeah. it out of a National Geographic, um, just a goofy little painting. And uh, I didn't know how to paint a figure, had no training, but I just kept looking at that picture and trying to get like the feel i wanted the feeling of the coat you know like the carl von mar gave me that feeling so just a little little painting but my you parents did this still at 13 yeah that's yep. quite impressive <laughs> for 13. yeah i was patient um i love the natural world um i was drawing things from national geographic little portraits and things but this was the first painting the next one i did after this was a full-on palette knife painting of a bouquet of flowers. And I don't have a picture of that one. I don't know where it is, but I know I moved from the photographs to trying to get this kind of impasto. Um, How did you even then think I, to I, do that at that age? I mean, that seems so sophisticated. Well, I don't know. I think, I really think Jeff, I think young people are their minds and uh, um, their creativity. It's so, it's so much more than we give it like credit for we think about these young people as being categorical like they're going to do this they're going to do that but if you really watch an uninhibited 10 12 13 year old they are so innovative in the way that mm. they engage in the world and i think a lot of our arts education even our just general education it stifles that so i i my deepest hunch is that it was the material of oil paint that led me to move from the photographic reference to the perceptual painting. The, it, it, I think the oil paint itself, and um, I don't know if you want to talk about oil paint, but that's, I'm, I'm a material painter. Like I am interested in the oil paint. Hmm. And I think that for me, it literally is oil that, um, captivates and drives a lot of my uh, practice. And I think, you know, the brain, our brains are 60% oil, 60%. I didn't know and that. Then, yeah. 
And then what do we, what, the other thing about our chemical makeup of our brain is it's so, the oil that's in there, the fat that's in our brain is so close to the omega-3s that are produced by flaxseed. And hmm. flaxseed gives us linseed oil. It's the flax plant, which gives us linen. And that oil is ground into, you know, our medium, our paint. And so I just think there's so much harmony there between the substance of the material of oil paint, why oil paints are, paintings are created, which is, is largely for our, it's not for our physical body. You know, it's for our mind, it's for our spirit, right? It's for our imagination. It feeds our emotional, intellectual, spiritual well-being. That's what paintings do. They don't, they don't serve our bodies, except when we're in the midst of making them, they serve our bodies somehow. But so we're, we're making oil paintings with the substance that is so chemically close to our brain for our brain, for our intellect. What spirit. a connection. You know, it's like, I just think there's something so powerful about that. So um, I, I'm I'm more aligned with like, um, you know, I included in just a couple images that I sent you before we began talking, um, a Joseph Boy's image of a chair with the triangle of fat. And he is, yeah, that's that little guy. You might have to enlarge it. It might not be a great image. But um, Joseph Boy's, just in his radical you know, other endedness. He's a very material painter uh, or an artist, I'm going to say. Um, and he really bought into like the artist as shaman, as um, someone who goes to a certain ends and, and experiences something, goes way out of the schema of what is normal. And, and by doing that, kind of takes something away and brings something back and re-offers it to everyone else who is afraid or uncertain about going there. And then the consumer, the audience looks at it and in some way we understand, okay, he went there, we understand that and now it can be part of our, you know, path to joy, our acceptance of our humanity, whatever it is, uh, elixir of our woe. And in this chair, um, he has sculpted a wedge of fat. And so I just think about oil as anointing, oil anoints, oil heals, and oil nourishes. Wow. Jeff, is that a painting? That is too cool. But, you That's know, it's, I, I'm amazed by your intellect and your appreciation for this metaphor because particularly because all I can think about is how bad this chair must stink. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, yeah. and also I've been watching The Walking Dead and I'm thinking they're, they're smashing all these brains in and this could make a great painting medium. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, different strokes a... for different folks there. <laughs> no, no, yeah, and it's, it's, for me, boys is not, um, it's, it's not the visual aesthetic of his work that I yeah. align myself with. But it is the the um, the the quality of the ritual, um, the nature of the um, it's conceptual, but also the material aspects of why he's doing this. And I feel like I feel a kinship to that fact, to that chair. 
um, what are we but that? You know, I, I think there's something, there's something that touches me deeply about Boise's work, even though my aesthetic habit is way far away from, from it. But I thought I'd throw it in there because yeah. he's an interesting person and does really represent that shamanistic kind of approach to thinking about who is the artist. And yeah. I think we need that. I think we, we need that person. So you must have a real love particularly for, maybe this is redundant to say, but the reason I'm saying it is because I, I, this is new to me, but it seems like you just have a real connection with oil paint and not so much with, it's not so much about art in general, but you're like really connected to oil paint specifically. I, I think right now I, I really am. I mean, there's something about, and it, it is oil paint, but it's, it's the materiality of the substance that I work with, whatever that happens to be. Like, I, I really don't want to work with acrylic. I'm not interested in plastic. Um, yeah. I don't think anything that I can make with plastic will resonate the same as if I make it out of a material that has a, a resonance with my physicality, my you know, um, relationship to nature, my relationship to science. Like, I just think making a painting that has some substantive quality that I can resonate with is important. Like, I would actually, I actually prefer casein over gouache. I, and I, and part of that isn't, it's not just the properties of the paint. It, there is an intellectual uh, relationship, conceptual relationship with the material because casein is milk. And what do women do when they have babies? They lactate. I mean, my body has produced milk, which is a really weird thing to say. But at the same time, I marvel at that. You know, I marvel at that my brain is made of this similar fat, chemical makeup of fat as flaxseed that I paint with. I marvel at that. And I think on some level, there's some mystery inherent in that. Um, and and I, I wow. love the mystery of what it is I am trying to arrive at. And um, I'm also like, okay, so I, I was kind of talking about the story of my arc. Do you want to, should I interrupt myself to go yeah, back to well, that? Yeah, well, I want to, I just want to say that this is amazing because, you know, I've often said to my students that there's something beautiful about things like oil paint and charcoal and all these mediums that we use, that they come yes. from the earth and we can make these images that are so beautiful and represent reality and things yeah. of the earth and you're taking it so much further and saying these mediums are not just of the earth they are human mediums they're coming from the body indirectly well, and if, yeah indirectly yeah i've not ever made casein no 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 my I know. Own milk. <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> not i haven't done that <laughs> but um but i do really think that you know i just heard yo-yo ma the other day was talking about his um beethoven three it's a three-person um, quartet, or a, what is a three? A, well, three I people are playing Beethoven. <laughs> I'm not a musician. <laughs> but what he said is that Beethoven is so relevant now because he touches on what is cathartic and what is um, like, a, not transformational, transcendent. What is cathartic and what is transcendent. And, and if we carry through the model that, well, like you're painting the human figure, right? Mm -hmm. So 
So in a sense, you're using oil to paint something that is oily, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, that's a trip. And, and to, and like to have this cathartic and transcendent where one material morphs and generates another thing, you know, we're making a new reality. We're making another entity. Um, there has to be some harmony between that in order for those to be wholly unified, in my opinion, in my experience, and in my thinking. So, wow, that's, that's I love this. So, I just taught a workshop, and my, my process is very indirect. I use a lot of layers in order to, uh, particularly with skin, in order to yes. create the translucency that's in skin. And yes. I would, I said in the workshop, and I've said this a thousand times, that oil is the perfect medium for that. Because you can't get that combination of opacity and translucency with any other medium. But what, what after hearing you talk now, I'm realizing it's so much more significant than that. Because when we're painting skin with oil, it's almost as though, in a way, we're literally making skin by layering oil. Yeah. Like, and, I mean, you know, maybe I'm taking it too far, but it's like, no. I mean, the skin is translucent because of that organic nature. And because of its oiliness. Yeah. I mean, we, our skin is the second largest organ on our body that holds that oil, you know, and it does come to the surface. That oil comes to the surface. And someone who's written about oil painting, this might appeal to you in that same realm. His name is James Elkins, and he was a painter, but then a theoretical uh, critic on painting. And he wrote about the, what's called the materia prima. And he's speaking about painting from this very alchemical kind of point of view. And he says, the materia prima is nothing yet. That's our oil, right? It's nothing mm -hmm. yet, but it, it has the potential. It is in potentia to become anything in the world the gleam on a pearl, the little red in the corner of an eye. And so this materia prima, this substance, which is nothing, has the potential to become everything, is kind of the way that I think about the oil paint itself, because in some ways it's becoming something new, but it is also behaving as itself, you know? Mm, yeah. And the, the reason I thought of Elkins is because on the cover of his book, he has this beautiful Rembrandt por portrait, and he gives one of the best descriptions of the nature of the skin of the Rembrandt portrait. It's it's kind of bally. The oil paint almost mimics like little skin tags. There are little greasy lines. It has a, a depth to it, uh, a texture to it. And when you were saying, yeah, well, maybe we're taking this a little too far to think that the translucency of oil is exactly what allows you to do that indirect painting to create that translucency. Maybe we're not taking it too mm -hmm. far because in a sense, you know, you think of Rembrandt standing there. What do we all do as painters? We trade our life. Rembrandt standing there traded his physical, active, living life to transmit and transform and transcend something into the painting that now when we look at the painting, we see some remnant of him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, 
I think only medium to do that. That's great. I love that. So let's um let's go back though. Let's pick up where you left off on in your life. Mm -hmm. So we've got to the third grade. Yeah. And then no, we got to 13 okay. years old. You're 13 years old, you have your paint yeah. set and you do a couple paintings. Yeah. Where where did your education go from there in painting? Okay. I went to St. Norbert College undergrad, um, had a very well-rounded education in philosophy and um you know, they say philosophy and poetry are the two uncorruptibles. You know, you can't make a dime <laughs> off of those. But they gave me, that gave me a, a place to think. And then there was an art program there. I, I graduated in graphic design. Um, the person who taught painting, he wasn't a painter. He was a photographer. So hmm. very little school. Um, he introduced me to a lot of good concepts, um, really good people there. But I didn't really get quite... The, what I really wanted out of my undergraduate training in terms of painting. But then I graduated, I applied to a whole bunch of schools, um, got into really every place I applied, which was fabulous. But I ended up choosing um, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee because they said, if you come here, you can teach. And I didn't wanna, I knew I didn't wanna have any bills. And so I was 23, uh, well, 23 once I graduated, and started teaching at UWM drawing. And I really kind of reinvented it. It was all perceptual. It was so fun. Um, I think in some ways I was maybe my best teacher at that point because I was so driven, so compelled to try to communicate how to go about doing this. And there was a, a clear rapport between the students and myself that they could feel how much I wanted to give this to them. And so in a sense, we were all in it together, but I was ahead of them. And then I taught all through graduate school. And um, so in graduate school, there were two primary people that I worked with, John Colt, who was a watercolor painter, and then Tom Mutek, who, this is one of his works. Um, it was, this is a large work, it's about 94 by 94. Um, I believe this was just part of his show at Alexandra Gallery in New York. And so these two men were absolutely compelled by nature. And they expressed it in very uh, different ways, in different ways than what I wanted to do and wanted to, um, you know, kind of find a pathway toward. But um, they both expressed this kind of ecstatic view of nature. And I found myself gravitating toward them because the conversations were so really beautiful um, about the natural world. And so while in graduate school, getting my MFA, there wasn't like a, a direct skill set handed on. It was more about a language and um, a way, a path forward that said, if you love this, keep moving toward it. And so in graduate school, I really painted very abstractly. I painted with um, encaustic raw beeswax, I painted with some tar, I painted with oil paint, namely, I think, because honestly, I didn't have a skill set vocabulary to work out of. Mm -hmm. And um, in some ways, I have regret about that. I wish it could have been different. I would, my path would have been another path if I had had that skill set. On the other hand, um, I'm where I'm at, and I'm a happy person. I love painting. Um, I have conviction for how I think about painting. And 
those things that I did learn and kind of found my way toward, they really have never let me down. So um, hmm. it's a kind of a crazy thing, but I, I do love where I'm at. So. so are you still teaching now? I just stopped teaching after 32 years of teaching. I just stopped and um, I'm painting full time again. And I'm really, I just am really loving that. I, I found in myself that I really was a teacher. I mm -hmm. got a lot of fulfillment out of teaching. Um, I love the language in the studio. I love being in the studio with those young people. Um, they gave me a lot. I, I love my relationships that I have with former students. And um, yeah, I really did enjoy it. I felt, I felt like because after I graduated and I was working so much from observation through all of my training, just kind of individually in a way, um, I felt like I was really giving them a skill set that they might not otherwise have, have had gotten. Maybe I was trying to give them what I wished that I had received in part, but mm. I was always coupling it with the, you know, philosophical, conceptual, theoretical otherness of what painting also is. So. Yeah. So let's talk about that painting from observation. So I want to go back to this little girl that you painted. Let's see. <laughs> It's so, it's such a great little painting. Um, <laughs> but what, what you mentioned when we talked about this little girl, I guess you painted her at 13, correct? Yep. Okay. Then you said at some point you put the magazines away and the photos away and you started working from direct observation. And from- It, it was, yeah, it was literally the next painting I made. This was the very first one that I made because I was, um, I, I had been drawing from National Geographic pictures mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. I got the oil set. I'm like, oh, I'm going to paint this thing. So I just painted her. And then the very next painting was a small vase with a few flowers. And I painted it entirely with a palette knife. And, and that was from direct observation. Yep. Yep. So, and it appears and like that, you still do that. I mean, I'm watching, I watch you on Instagram mm -hmm. and you'll be out in the middle of the winter yeah. painting a plate in the snow and it's just yep. unbelievably impressive your dedication to direct observation yeah i i jeff i get so much from that i i'm so interested in that that rapport between myself my subject and the what is being manifest in the painting i um i'm at a place in my own work that um yes getting the huge thing out to the site is hard. Uh, yes, it is occasionally really cold or really uh, hot or there are insects or it's unpleasant. But my experience is that I have enough um, experience of completely losing language, um, of completely, I feel at times like I disappear into whatever it is. I don't know where exactly I go. I know that's the state of flow, um, but that can last for a long time. And being outside uh, and be or being in front of my subject, even with some portrait and figure work that I've done, I can get lost um, in that, in the presence of whatever it is in front of me. And it takes a presence. It takes a presence of someone else for me to submit whatever my presence 
I guess. I don't know. I'm trying to just think it out as I say it, but mm. um, I think that's part of it. I think there, I have to be in the presence of something kind of palpable, and then I get to get lost in the work. And, you know, these paintings, they are, some of them are quite large. And I always think, like, why would someone collect my work? What What is a collector? What's the interest there? And I always post those images now of me working outside in the landscape because the fact is that when I'm in the woods, some of the pollen, the air, the temperature, the painting itself goes through that same environmental condition that the subject I am painting is going through. Mm. And, and I think that there is something that happens in that, a poetic mystery that happens within that, that makes the painting different than if I were solely in a studio working from a photographic source. And, and that difference is that there's a contribution that comes from the elements that changes my, my pace, my thinking, my body, my temperature, and I see the subject changing in time. So that gets into the painting somehow. And a lot of times I think of those paintings as kind of like artifacts from nature. Um, and I don't know if you bring a Christmas tree into your house every year, I do, yeah. but we do. And every year I'm blown away. I'm like, wow, there's a tree in our house. Yeah. <laughs> well, ours and, is still up. It's February, what, 6th yeah. today? And ours is still up. And my wife decorated exactly. it in a, as a Valentine's tree because we love it so much. <laughs> That's right. We've done that too. And, and a lot of times when I bring these paintings in from outside, I literally feel like I've brought the Christmas tree in, indoor. Because once I go inside, I really feel the shelter. You know, I feel like I'm in shelter. And there's no other way. It's, it's a really amazing feeling. Yeah. So I worked from life exclusively for 14 years. So that's why I was just, just related to that feeling. Everything you're saying, I absolutely relate to. And then COVID hit and as a figurative painter, I had to start using photography. Oh yeah. And, um, I absolutely agree with you. Um, but I want you to uh, tell me about the viewer though. I wonder what, do you feel like the viewer has a different experience or could have a different experience because of how you make your work, because you're working directly from observation? Well, I, I do. I mean, I, I think that there is something transmitted through the materiality of the painting that does arouse a different effect in the audience. And, and that is not necessarily like exactly what they see on the surface of the painting or in the narrative of the painting. But it is because I'm in that specific condition, my decisions are incrementally tweaked. They are slightly adjusted. They are mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. responsive to and sensitized to a nuance that I know is, is shifting, is flexible, is malleable, is, um, is different than if I'm looking at something that is static and fixed and I can take a different kind of time with, that I, that I have a different rapport with. 
and I do have a different rapport with a photograph or if I'm indoor painting a still life or a model, um, though that's a different rapport. And so to that end, and I know that's nuanced, but to that end, I think I'm giving the audience something that they dearly need. And that is in part what they see, but it might also be part of the knowledge that they have that this thing, this artifact was made on site in a space that they are compelled by and that they would like to be in and that they have some memory um, generated from or an emotional response to. And when you tell them, I sat there, I was, these are my gloves and I sat in the cold a long time for you so that you could have this thing. And I made it the way I made it because of all of the conditions that I was subject to that this painting that you will live with was subject to. This painting was cold. This painting was more greasy this day because it was hot outside. The mm -hmm. paint was slippery. And on this day, the painting was stiff and sticky and I had to put a little bit more medium in it to make it move. And then when I brought it inside, it was more tacky. When I tell them that, it it does change the relationship to that thing yeah. that is me. I don't oh, know. Oh, man. I love this. I Seriously, this is so great to hear you talk about this because it, it, it really hits home for me. You know, there's a I had an experience I, I in would... Israel where I just, I was up on, I can't remember exactly where it was in Israel, um, somewhere in the desert. And we're overlooking this these sand dunes for miles and miles and miles. And then all of a sudden these camels come along with these Bedouin people. And the Bedouin wow. people, they didn't speak English or anything, but they were all dressed in traditional Bedouin costume. And they were trying to sell us these um, Bedouin um, like scarves and jewelry and beads and so on and so forth. And my guide who was from there and was Muslim, yeah. he said, don't buy any of that stuff. And I said, well, why? He goes, because it's all Chinese made. They don't even dress like this except for tourists. They dress in oh. Western clothes. He says they yeah. only own a camel in order to make you feel like you're in, you know, speaking to a Bedouin. They, they, they're normal people, right? And um, yeah. he says it's all Chinese jewelry, Chinese stuff. And I was like, it didn't matter to me at that point. It immediately lost interest. It didn't matter that the scarves and the beads and everything looked exactly like Bedouin yeah. clothing and jewelry. It was now Chinese jewelry and because mm -hmm. it was made in China. And it, yeah. what I'm hearing you say is something similar to that. It's like I could paint a vase of flowers from a photo, but it's now, but now it's made in China. Now it's made not from the flowers and the vase. Right. It's made from something else somewhere else. And it's almost an inauthentic, dishonest interpretation and, in a way. And it passes through you. It passes through right. you, the artist, with a different set of conditions that are mediated. It's a mediated experience. It's right. mediated by the photograph. It's controlled by that set of limitations. And, and that does not allow for as much um, incidence of, um, it's more fragile to be present in front of the thing because you have to live your life in relationship to that condition. 
it, whether it's a model who might move or shift or whatever it is that they do, uh, or a gust of wind or an animal that comes by, you, you're conditioned in that relationship, and that relationship changes palpably what happens, at least in my practice. Oh, you're making me want to throw my camera away again. Oh. No, you know, the, <laughs> don't do that. You are, you know, I do think, Jeff, I seriously think that, um, okay, for me personally, I don't usually do any commission work that is from photographs. But um, I just did four large commissions, and I don't usually publish those because they're people's private spaces, and I feel like it's their thing. But this woman, um, through Instagram, commissioned me, and she just kept saying, please, I think you're the right person to do this. It was family property, and she really wanted me to make the painting, but I had to make it from a photograph. I was like, I, I don't think so. You know, I don't think I can do this, whatever it was. And so finally, she told me her life story, some of her story, and I was like, okay, there's something here. I'm going to do it. So I did it recently, and she loved the painting. I actually really enjoyed the process. I felt like it was a really strong work. And what I did, Jeff, is probably exactly what you do and what I hear so many plein air artists say, yeah, I make the study or I've painted so often from the landscape that now I can do this. Those experiences of you being vulnerable in front of your model, you being aware of their shifting, their moving, of their intellect, their physical, their spiritual well-being, that leaves a residue. It's a residue of experience on you. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, can still be transmitted then when you do work from photographs. And after you work for photographs for a long, 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 long time, I think you lose some of that. It gets quieted down. And then I think you have to go back to the well and get the experience and then start again. Well, That's my thank you on. for that. Thank you for that because I spent yeah. a lot and of money on that camera and I don't want to throw it away. <laughs> your portraits are beautiful. Well, most your of them are done from the, life, but yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. The portraits that. are beautiful. And I was thinking about, like, uh, when I was looking at your work, I, I'm really eager to see one of your paintings in person. I, I'm, I will look forward to that. But um, I was thinking and looking at your work, um, you know, there are so many different access points to paintings. And one of them is the narrative, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And then another one for me is like the construct of the painting, the design of the painting. And then another one is the scale. Scale matters to me. Like I think of scale as an entry point in, and the other is materiality. And in your paintings, because of the way that you use um, these really electric, um, amped up, high chroma light sources, there's something about the the coloration of that that feels like the mystery and the entry point into the painting. And there's I, I see your painting as like like there's the figure that you are painting and they have that light source upon them. Some of them feel oblivious to that source light and others feel like they are knowledgeable of that source light. But I think of it as like the, there's some mystery involved in that that speaks to like um, the 
I don't know, like the spiritual quality of the person. And mystery is such an incredible, you know, mm. almost medium. It's almost a medium, really. Man, yeah. I should hire you to write my artist statement. That was beautiful. I love, I love the way you think. I mean, it's you have just this poetic, uh -huh. and you did study philosophy, correct? I mean, I, I did. You a little did, bit. yeah. So you just you have this incredibly poetic philosophical mind. It's it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love it. Okay, so let's go to your website. And as far as I understand it, on your website, you can look at these paintings and then see you working outside. So, oh my gosh, this is freaking amazing. Yeah. If amazing. you scroll up, Jeff, if you scroll all the way up on that one, keep going, right there, that one, if you can, I don't know, I think you could probably enlarge this one, the bottom picture of me with the just kind of two finger expand. Oh, uh, well, I can't on here. I can't do that. Oh, you here. can't. Okay. No. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, so not. Those will, I think I your viewers can probably, probably get an idea. There's your head right yeah. there. That's my head. So that's a big painting. And you know what's really a trip is how the painting is camouflaged into the background. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not one of those silly Instagram tricks where they do it for, for follows. But it's like, it's yeah. just so convincing of the feeling of the environment. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah, thank you. I was uh, moving the painting. And since I've had an Instagram these last couple of years, my husband um, comes out and occasionally will take my picture. And it's it's been really helpful for, you know, capitalizing on an Instagram audience of collectors and other artists. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit about this process. Okay, so this is all the same painting. So you've got it here. You're clearly mm -hmm. outside. Yeah. And that is a beautiful land. This is Wisconsin. Yes, man, that's gorgeous. And then, um, and then you're here in the studio on this picture. So what yeah, do you, what, tell just, me about what you're doing here is touch ups or just displaying it? No, I had just come home from um, painting up north is like uh, five hours away. We have a little place up in the woods and um, had just come home. You can see the baskets on the floor in the studio. I just put it on the easel to kind of let it dry and really just to look at it. <laughs> okay. And so I thought, hey, I'll take a picture of it. It kind of made sense with some of the other stuff going on there. So tell me about when you do these, what I think are very complex paintings. Cause I, I actually had, I went painting with a guy once who said he never paints in the middle of the woods like this because the shapes are too complex, too busy. It won't make yeah. a great painting, you know? And I've mentioned this to other people I've podcasted with Mm -hmm. And they've had various answers, but how, what is your thinking on that? How do you manage all of this information? And why do you, what do you think it is about paintings like this that you tend to gravitate toward? Because you do a lot of paintings that are very, that have very complex, small shapes in them. So can you tell me about that a little bit? What your thinking is? Yeah. Uh I, you know, I really love the painter Bastien LePage and his woodcutter painting was one that I saw at another at one at a young age um, in the Milwaukee Art Museum. Mm -hmm. And this painting in particular was kind of an homage painting in a sense to him. Um, but um, yeah, that flora and fauna, the, the trees, the changing light, um, it really, it takes a long time for me to be with that subject. Um, there's painting over painting. There's, it's just a matter of layering what I'm looking at. I, I know there, there's so many things that I can get quote unquote better at um, in terms of skill, but what I'm really leaning into these days more than anything is what is my nature? 
what is my nature as a painter? And my nature as a painter is revealed through um, little stacking of quite small marks and, um, and letting that accumulation become the illusion. And so that allows me a lot of freedom because while I do have some very large passages in the painting, inevitably the painting is woven together by all of those scumbles and veils and scraping back and rebuilding in fairly small incremental ways. And um, mm. so I, I always tell like painters, especially painters who are younger, um, what is one of the most important things that they could do I, I say, know your nature, follow your nature, and then take all those skills and build them toward and into your nature. Because that will, that will that's how you get authenticity. That's how you get to be relaxed and be a painter that has some, um, you know, a voice that is your truly your own. So when you say your nature, you're referring to your own personal temperament, your own... Your temperament, yeah. yes. Okay. And I think your character, your character is involved in that, but your temperament, yeah, temperament, your nature, yeah. Yeah. Well, so are you familiar with Kwong Ho's work? Oh, I love it. I thought you might. I mean, I don't. Your and work I doesn't look like his. With him. Oh, don't. Yeah, Adrian. it was a great woo, one. Woo. I know those two are great. great. You should come to the Porch Society this year. They're both going to be there, and it's going to be a oh, lot of that, fun. But yeah. um. Let I've me, always wanted to go to that, but I never have. Oh, you should. We would love yeah. to see you there. But so this this reminds me of Kwong Ho when I get when I zoom in right here. And the way he would talk about this is that every every tiny portion of a painting should be a little abstract painting. And it should work on that level, that little abstract level without knowing what it is. And I actually have a painting of his that he gave me. He's a really generous person, but of a, of a little figure in in the woods that almost looks like this when you zoom into yours you know oh. but yeah you i i feel like you guys That's are kind praise. of uh, kin spirits there <laughs> that is high praise for sure yeah well let's look at a few more of your your paintings here okay um uh, so this one my wife just started beekeeping oh, and yeah. i thought when i saw this i was really amazed because i thought yeah i could just go out in my front yard because she's got this cute garden in the front yard and this these mm -hmm. bees and everything. And I have a tendency to go for the dramatic because I do biblical stuff and I do narrative family portraits. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a, I tend to go for the dramatic. And I look at yours and I'm like, you're pulling drama out of the everyday, out of the simple. I find yeah. that incredible. And, and I, uh, I remember looking at my those bee boxes that look just like this in my front yard and going, I would have never even thought to paint that. Yeah. And you made this incredible piece of art with that. Tell me a little bit about what 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 you see in a scene or or how you choose your subject. What motivates you to paint a certain thing? Um I think I think I'm compelled by certain things and I do think Jeff that a lot of that is it it, it we use language to describe what it is, but it, for me it is visual. It is a visual knowledge of visual compulsion. Um, certain things just tell you something that you can read if you pay attention to them. And um, I knew that there was something about like the weight of the stone that was on top of the beehive 
and the ephemeral nature of the smoke. Um, there, there's a little white butterfly on the other side of the painting, and this painting is um, like 58, I think, wide. Yeah, right there's the little butterfly. Yeah, let's zoom in um, there. And if you scroll up to the more images, you can, yeah, there's a, right where the hand right where is, the there's hand a little is. butterfly. There it is, yeah. Yep. And I, I thought about like all of these little oppositions within the painting, the solidity of the blue cottage, and then the openness of the um, dry rack um, used to uh, dry clothes. And I wanted the painting, I very often start the painting right at the audience's feet, right at my feet, and then draw them up and in. And um, so I, I really was thinking about these eternal balances of what is solid and what is ephemeral, what is weighted and what is light. And I, I think there's so much about a beehive because there is kind of this promise of sweetness um, that is unseen, but it is part of the mystery of the painting. And um, yeah, those are some of the things that I, I gravitate toward. Hmm. So uh... Do you you mentioned that you come in at, at the viewer's feet or at your feet, so at the front of the canvas toward the bottom of the canvas? Yeah. Do you think that as has any is caused in any way at all by that experience you had in the Wisconsin Museum with that beautiful huge painting where your eye level was right at the feet? Yeah, it could very well be that. Um, it that that painting did in specific cause me to look straight up ahead and then to look up you know there was this this yeah. physical gesture that i had to make to take in the painting but honestly i i think maybe um there were a bunch of years ago i saw antonio lopez garcia's um sink and mirror and in that painting he gives a kind of physical divide to divide the painting where we look down at the sink yeah you see you can see it real clearly in this mm -hmm. so there's this mm -hmm. divide and we're looking down and then he shifts our perspective up and yeah. i was so taken by that and i really think that there's something about i mean i know our experience as men and women is definitely on a schema i don't do a lot of vistas though i think there's something there, there's an emotional difference between a vista and a, a painting that is anchored right at your feet and um, this kind of looking down and then slightly up, looking down and slightly up, you know, a lot of people, women, when they have their children and their toddlers and they're young, we, we really do spend a lot of time looking down at our feet and slightly up. And I think that hmm. that's a space that I love. And I, I really love like placing my audience pretty much where I'm standing, because again, that kind of heightens this credibility of the verisimilitude of the painting for them and and also for myself you know um in lucy and freud's large figurative paintings there's almost this grotesque kind of um subtle manipulation of what we think of as all the asymmetries of the body but he is so darn close to those figures that that's when those irregularities are most pronounced to us and I, I like that pronouncement of those irregularities in nature. Whereas if you look at the vista, things become um, tonally uh, more harmonious and um, the pa there is more about passages than it is about incremental changes. And I right now am more aligned with the incremental changes, looking down 
and slightly up. That's what I, I want my audience to feel that too. Hmm. That's awesome. All right, let me look at some uh, some more of your work here for the audience. And I there was one that I know I saw on Instagram some time ago. All right, so okay, so this is one that, that's a good example of what you just said, where you've kind of you're kind of entering at the bottom, looking down at your feet, and then it flattens out at the top, and it's like the picture plane is arced. And one yeah. thing about that, it's kind of amazing to me is that's really difficult to do. I've, I've done things like that. It's, you have to be a pretty dang good draftsman to pull that off. And then I scroll down here and look at where you're looking at it and you're looking beyond 90 degrees at the subject. And yeah. uh, I'm kind of mind blown. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. Why are you looking almost behind you here? Yeah, um, I was set up um, that field of flowers was along a highway. And so the highways where the camera angle was taken and I didn't have a lot of choices because I knew I wanted the sunlight to be hitting those flowers consistently from the east or uh, right. not east, the south. And so I, my canvas is full sun lit, which I know a lot of people shy away from, but I love painting that way. Um, and my shoulders to the painting and my torso and my eyes are directly to my subject. So it's not that that much of a difference than, you know, parallel, parallel. Um, but um, yeah, that was just the painting called for that. And that's what I did. And that's just another one of those things that you were talking about with the, the complexities or the variation that you deal with when working on location. It's not just subjects moving, but it's your orientation to the subject because you have to deal with all of those other, um, yeah. yeah, all those other details. <laughs> Um, yeah, this painting actually started just as the flowers. And then second day I went out and I brought the chair and the pot. And I didn't know exactly why I was bringing them, but I kind of just trusted it. And I plunked them down and then I thought, yeah, they're going to be part of the painting. They're going to definitely be part of the painting. To me, they're the subject of the painting. I mean, that was a, yeah. that was a great move. Yeah, the gloves came in last. I've been really painting quite a lot of gloves. Um, you know, maybe since the, I think, 1990s, I started painting some gloves, but they're coming back and they definitely are like a surrogate for hands, you know, our hands. Yeah, the the layers, you talked about layers and how you just kind of just keep on scumbling one layer on top of mm -hmm. another, wet on top of dry. It adds mm -hmm. a lot of character to the piece. Um, are you influenced at all by Russian painting? Uh, I love Isaac Levitan's paintings, and I'm following a number of um, contemporary Russian painters, plein air painters mm -hmm. on Instagram. So those those folks, yes, I, I love their work. Yeah, because you almost, I mean, I don't know. I don't, it's, I, I could have almost guessed you were Russian, you know, and oh. seeing your work. It's the good Polish-Irish combination. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, and but, that's a compliment. Uh, I am a huge fan of Russian painting. I just yeah, love it. I, I am too. I, I, I mean, it's very nice of you to say that. I don't think I'm at that point. But and honestly, Jeff, you know, there there are places in my painting where I do look, go back and look at um, the stage of the painting that was like an earlier veil of mm -hmm. the painting. And I just wish I had left it. I really? tend to love to stay in the painting just a little bit longer than what my aesthetic self likes in the outcome. 
So like the outcome, I'm, I'm driven to this level of outcome because I love being in the state of making a painting over a course of three weeks or so. And it's hard for me to let go of that. But the outcome that I would love aesthetically is one stage earlier than I stay. <laughs> if that Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you I know think, what I mean? Yeah, I think a lot of artists have this battle between temperament and yeah. taste. Mm-hmm. You know, I and for me, it's why I don't like much of my work because my temperament is completely, completely conflicts with my taste. <laughs> yeah, and and it's like it's it for me. It, it's like I am, um, I'm like the guest who just is enjoying the conversation so long, so much that I don't want to leave and I over talk. You know, I gotta get <laughs> if I could just get I'll extricate myself a little sooner and say there will be another chance. Uh, then I would personally even like the painting better. But at that point, I can't see that. I, I can't see that. So, Do you have an example of a painting where you did stop earlier and you feel like that was the sweet spot? Um, I have a lot of uh, documents of paintings in that earlier stage, but not a lot that are that stage. Um, because maybe there's the such a looseness. With the, oh, go ahead. The, the little still life with the oval bowl. Yeah, one above. Yeah, that one. Okay. Um, that might be one where oh, I, I see what definitely, you mean. I wasn't trying to make a full-blown painting. Um, the, the level of um, unresolve in this, I left it. Um, if it were a, a really large field painting, I don't think I would, you know, this was a, kind of a study painting. It was just a little painting, but... Um, that one has some of that unresolved in it that I, I thought added to the mystery of the work in a way. Mm -hmm. And I, I really prize mystery, you know, there's, a a writer who Joyce Carey, who wrote an uh, art book a long time ago. And he always talks about, um, or he talked about a dream, which is truer than actual life. And only an art is there, it is there made purposeful and actual to our experience. And I really think that there's something about that dream nature, you know, the mystery nature um, that's really important in, in, an, in a work of art. Something that is resolved and unresolved, not, not the mystery to uh, resolve, but the mystery to behold. It is an important feature. Yeah. Well, let me, let's talk about your process a little more. I'd like okay. to know kind of how you approach a painting from day one to the final day. Okay. Maybe one of those up at the top would be great to open. Okay. Um, yeah, like maybe one of the winter ones could be, yeah, like either either of those. That yeah, would let's be do this one, one cause we've already looked at the other one. Yeah, let's do this one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so this painting started in a community garden and then I quickly realized it was too cold. It, the temperature was like going to be really sub-zero. And um, so I went home and my husband, he knew I was kind of upset because I already had the start of the painting down. And there was no warming house, no shelter there. And um, he had the idea, why don't we just go get those two Brussels sprout plants and put them in our own garden? So we went to the community garden, we dug them up, we put them in our garden. And then um, the painting, I was really lucky because I was right in and out the studio door. 
Mm-hmm. And I started it with, um, at this point, I really loved Williamsburg um, Italian pink paint. It was um, their color Italian pink. It was like gritty. It had a, a real grit quality to it, but it was a little orangier than what I currently like. So I, I, have, I don't use it anymore. But I started it with that, just mapping, planning, um, looking, kind of seeking out where everything would be. Did a little bit of the underpainting. Then I went into this one with um, almost like a grisaille over the Italian pink. And um, that allowed me just to establish some of the value patterns. And then it was uh, pretty much full out painting at that point, um, just finding the form and taking my time and enjoying those plants. And um, in this one, you can see at the top, there's a real subtle arc. Mm-hmm. It's just an arch, very abstract shape that has appeared uh, numerous times in my landscape paintings. And it is a fa- totally a fabrication. Um, it is a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, it's a, there's an emotional quality to that abstraction that is really important to me. Hmm. But um, yeah. Yeah, that's... it took me a minute to see it, which is nice. It's mm-hmm. subtle. Yeah. You're talking about like the line in the snow. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and it 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 sort of formalizes that right at that point that the arch meets is a square mm-hmm. uh, below, and then the arc. Um, you know, in Renaissance times, they would have the the square where it was the earthly realm, all of the things that were material, physical, uh, transient, and then the arch started to indicate this spiritual realm, this um, other you know, eternal kind of quality. And so in this painting, that second Brussels sprouts plant, the head of it moves up into that realm. And it is sort of like this everyday um, extraordinary uh, quality of just the beauty of life. And I, I really see it that way. So the, the composition there is is square below and then arch. And, um, hmm. you know, it I'm almost makes him that. feel like an icon, like like these plants are an icon of sorts. Yeah, they feel like they're moving and shifting and sort of going up that up that rectangle. Do you have an example, another example of where you use that arc in your? Oh, um, here, here the it door, is. Yeah, that one. Yep. There it is. There's oh my gosh, yep. look at that. Yeah. I don't know if I ever would have noticed it. Yeah, it's very subtle. I used to paint just a lot of circles and then a lot of ellipses when I was working abstractly. And they, I think they really do carry a lot of um, import. They're important to me. So. Yeah. Is there another example? I think you in don't the have it in large wood pile. In the wood if pile. If you go to the large wood pile painting, yeah, this the puddle is not that it, it's not an invention, an abstraction, but it does incredibly um, reflect for me that same idea yeah. of the Renaissance kind of construct of this kind of, um, I don't know, there's a quality in the puddle that felt um, like a rite of passage or a ritual or a, um, it felt sacramental, I'm going to say. Right, um, right. Being in the woods at that time, it, it had just rained. Um, that water that is in the puddle was recently in the air you know that yeah. that to me is is really powerful and then it was super fragrant and um so this this is a large painting as well it's like uh i think 54 or 55 wide 
and um, just carrying that down to that site every day for a bunch That's of days. That's amazing. And, you are hardcore. Amazing. Yeah. And are know. you usually by yourself or do you have some help? Yeah, I'm usually, uh, for that painting, my husband, Pat, went, walked up and down every now and then. You know, we have bear, bears are in the woods up there. So every now and then they come visit me. But yeah, I love being by myself in those spaces and I do lose track of time. Do you, do you, how do you deal with like uh, onlookers? Do you get people that come and try and talk to you while you're out painting? Yeah, you know, I've done a couple of the plein air events and I've just started to pull back on that. I did them for like a year and a half. And I actually really love that, but I realize that I'm not a competitive painter. It's not in my nature. And so even though I made some money doing it, made a lot of connections with people, I love the people doing those plein air events. I'm just, it's not, it's not my temperament. And, um, but people would come up and talk and I actually really enjoy that. I, I love demoing and I love painting with other people. Um, I still teach a bunch of workshops, so. Yeah, I, it doesn't bother me. I, I feel like I can move from my the clarity of my mind painting. It's a pretty direct route. Like I don't have to go very far to dip into it. And same for flow. Flow for me for painting is a pretty quick entry. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about your business a little bit because I see a lot of red dots here. So you've obviously had some yeah. success. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. How do you market your work? How do you sell your work? Who represents you, if um, anyone? Yeah, I, um, for a lot of years, I was represented by a couple of galleries, moved out east, started teaching at Skidmore College, and then had one baby, two baby, three baby. We moved back to Wisconsin. And in that time, I really um, kind of pulled away from galleries. And at, I did wasn't online, but I had some word of mouth, and people would come to the studio, and there were certain people who really supported the work. And that's really how I made made work all through those years. There are a lot of paintings that I don't have documented, but I know they are out in the world and people are living with them. Um, just recently, like the last eight years, um, I really rededicated myself to direct observation and um, painting a little bit more ambitiously in terms of scale. And I knew that one of my goals was to get back into some galleries. So I started my Instagram about two years ago, and that has actually been really great. I, For me, it's connected me to just so many artists that I love their work, and I can see their work, but also a number of collectors have emerged from Instagram, both, both for small works, but also some of my very large plein air works wow. have been sold through Instagram and then Sight unseen, I ship them to these people and they love them. So <laughs> I'm very grateful. Yeah, that's um, great. But I knew, yeah, I knew for me, I really wanted to move back into a gallery. And I, I have one gallery in Door County, Wisconsin. It's Edgewood Orchard Galleries. And they've done very well for me. This is my first year with them. And then I just started um, a representation at Tory Foliard Gallery in Milwaukee and she's just she's an amazing gallerist she's really um a solid person with a good eye she really looks out for her artists and I know that from experience because right when I got up out of graduate school she was representing my work and then through all that transition of um you know family life and trying to balance teaching and painting and kids um she just I kind of dipped away from her 
and she just she really welcomed me back and I'm really really happy to be there with her so looking forward to just building over this next year a really big body of work for a solo show with her and um, the beautiful thing for me is um, my husband and I and one of our kids were going back to Scotland to live for a semester and I'm going to be painting there as well. Now, why do you say semester? You're not in school anymore. Oh, my husband is full professor. He's a oh, poet. Okay. And he's still teaching. So. Oh, yeah, your husband's is, a poet. Uh, That's fitting yes. considering how you think. I love yeah. it. You guys are meant for each other. Yeah. It was just one of those things that really brought us together. We both love poetry. And, you know, when I say that poetry and philosophy are the uncorruptibles, truly they are. You do that for a sense of inner passion. And it has really given me the freedom to be a painter who does not have to have a consistent pressure to make the paintings to sell them. You know, I'm making the paintings to make the paintings. And the selling of the paintings is part of that, certainly. But I'm with someone, I, my husband, who writes poetry not because he's ever going to make, you know, tons of money doing it. He's doing it because he has passion and conviction for that work. And it's beautiful. He has five books of poetry. And um, so we have a lot of conversations about what it means to live a beautiful life, a meaningful life, an intentional life. And we've been able to provide for our family and enjoy teaching. And uh, obviously, I enjoy painting. So that's part of it. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So are you going to really try and make a series? You said Scotland, right? Oh, right. Yes. So are you going to make a series to... of that area? Um, what I'm going to do for Tori is we decided I'm going to build the body of work for her before I leave. So it's going to be all framed, okay. all set up. Everything's going to be ready. And then I'm going to go to Scotland for a semester. When I come back from Scotland, the solo show will open at Tories, and then um, and then I'm going to have a body of work from Scotland. And when I'm there, Jeff, I'm so excited because even though I don't show my portrait work very much, the people in Scotland they will sit for you. They, they you're do. in a pub, and they will sit for you. Really? And so I'm going to do yeah, I'm going to do some portraits, and then I'm going to do some landscape work. Oh, man, I can't wait to see that body of work. That's going to be awesome. I'm so excited. So how do you know that? Because you've been to Scotland before then? Yeah, we've lived there twice in the past. And I'll tell you, um, I've painted at the National Galleries in Scotland doing master copies. One of them was a master copy of the Rembrandt. And another was of Velasquez, um, you know, the old woman cooking eggs. Mm -hmm. I did a portrait of the boy's head and then a Rubens painting and then I got to do a copy work at the Louvre. And um, yeah, I've, I've really benefited from that. That's And amazing. then painting in the landscape in Scotland, it's like, oh, mind-blowingly challenging. You really have to like uh, submit to the elements to make the painting. Just because it's overcast all the time and sunny, then cloudy, oh, then sunny, then cloudy. it's so changeable. Yeah. It, it'll be sunny five minutes, then it will snow, then it will be overcast, then it will rain, then the oh, sun will come back sounds brutal. Up. It's just crazy cool. But you're yeah. going to do it anyway. You're going to be outside the whole time. Oh, yeah. Time. I've done it in the past. I love it. Oh, my I gosh. Think. You're amazing. 
So your husband yeah. seems really supportive too. I mean, he's lugging, yeah. lugging canvases places for mm -hmm. you, you know, planting plants from the city garden in your garden. Yep. And how, how has that been over the years? Fabulous. I met the right person. He's a lovely man. Um, he, he's intellectual. He's po clearly poetic. Um, I think that what we decided very early in our marriage was, and maybe even before we were married, is that anything that progresses my work also progresses his work. Anything that progresses his work also progresses my work. It's not that I'm a painter and he's a poet. It's that we have an ex a kind of an exchange between us that is mutually supportive. And, and if we're both expanding like that, get claiming each other's solitude for sure. There's a lot of solitude um, for us. We protect that. I mean, Rainer Maria Rilke, he talks about protecting one another's solitude and um, we bought into that early. Yeah, that's such a cool thing because you're both creatives, but you have yeah. nothing to be competitive over. No, we don't. And our kids have gone into such unique fields like our oldest son, Walter, he's an architect just out of school. Our middle daughter, Mary Ellen, is primarily in, she's studying engineering and she loves it. She loves math, um, but she also is a phenomenal writer. And then our youngest daughter, Martha, loves um, all the cognitive sciences and everything on neuroplasticity and brain research. She's totally in. She also loves botany and she knows all the toxic plants of the world and how much toxicity you need. <laughs> She's kind of crazy. Wow. Cool kid. Yeah, that is a diverse yeah. family. Wow. Yeah. Well, so tell me if you could give advice to a young artist that wanted to yeah. be a painter like yourself, what would that be? I would say, um, first and foremost, know your nature, find your nature, whatever that is, your temperament, your character, um, your, your, um, you know, your values, know that. And out of that, uh, build skill, but don't lose sight of that individual nature because that's going to be what um, propels you forward and it's going to be your touchstone so knowing your nature and how do you find your nature well you push up against a lot of different things you take um you know risks that are calculated calculated risks but be very very open but always ask, is this something that is of my nature that, or is it something new to my nature that I want to fold into my nature or my character? And um, out of that, just be ready to follow it. You know, grab the reins, those horses are gonna take you somewhere and, and follow and be patient. But a lot of the people in my workshops are retired from a profession that they loved and was very meaningful to them, but now they want to paint. and. For those people, I don't tell them to follow your nature. What I tell them is follow the process that makes sense to you. The, I think the process has to be a driving factor because they might not have all, all that it takes to follow the arc of a skill set in the same way they have other life experience that will insert itself 
for that skill set. So yes, they need to, to build skill, but if they follow a process and find a materiality of, you know, something to work with that they love, that is meaningful to them, I think everything else, the confidence of what they're doing will come out of that. Certainly the skill set, but follow a process. So mm. important. That's that's great advice. Well, Beth Ann, it's been awesome talking to you. It's been a huge inspiration. Thank you so much. I love talking to you and thank you so much. I would love to talk to you more about your paintings at some point. So we'll do if that. We could sometime connect it would be just a pleasure we'll do so that thank you for the podcast and your work jeff i really appreciate it have a great day you too thanks for tuning in to the undraped artist podcast if you enjoyed it subscribe and if you could leave a comment or review that really helps the channel please share the show with your friends and if you're feeling generous consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com thanks again for watching we'll see you next week